everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the MIT FinTech Conference podcast. This is a limited series of episodes where we will meet and learn from our conference speakers. We are an MIT's lone student-led event taking place on February 25th in Cambridge. For more information on the conference, stick around until the end of the episode. My name is Gabby, and I'm an MIT Sloan student. I'll be your host today. Joining us today is Alex Kostecki, co-founder and COO of Claire. Claire is a social fintech that provides on-demand access to payroll. Founded in 2019, Claire has raised a $15 million Series A earlier this year. Alex is the brains behind Claire's product strategy and business model design. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are so excited to have you. So Alex, can you describe for our listeners what Claire's offerings are and how you guys came up with the idea in the first place? Yeah, for sure. So really simply put, Claire is a digital banking platform that offers you your paycheck as soon as you clock out of work for no fees. Uh, what's really unique about us is we embed ourselves where people work. So we're embedded in the clocks they use to clock in and clock out. We're embedded in the payroll systems they use upon signups. Um, we're basically available as soon as they start their jobs. Um, so the way we came up with Claire is, you know, back in the day when I was a student, like everyone, I faced the pain of waiting for a paycheck. I worked in construction, odd jobs, and it was particularly when I was working on the side. Uh, I, I, you know, my birthday's on May 28th. And I always remember I had to borrow money from friends to get beers at that time. Like it was, it was always waiting for that paycheck. And when I moved to the U S I was actually astounded by the number of people who are in this situation. More than 55% of the U S lives paycheck to paycheck, according to a recent research by payments and lending club. And around the time I worked at Deloitte in FinTech, Uber was working on the launch of a product called Uber money to drivers. So at a high level, this is a super similar product to what Claire actually ended up becoming. Um, but the general idea was, you know, an Uber driver could get access to their rides worth of cash at the end of every day. And what they saw was basically a drastic change in behavior. Um, Uber drivers were getting rated higher. They were staying longer. They weren't getting a second job. They were less stressed. They were getting less payday loans. And I think it really underscored the importance of... Um, basically liquidity for low-income people in the U.S. and how that can actually completely change your day-to-day. -day. So it's great that Uber can launch a debit card, but for us, the idea was, you know, the rest of the U.S. should have access to that. And so we really started looking at what are the options for people to get access to their paychecks? How can we make sure that this isn't another payday loan or something that's charging a ton of, you know, really high interest rates or fees? And how can we make sure that, you know, not only an Uber driver or somebody who works for a giant company, but also your sort of server at a re uh, next door pizzeria can have access to this? Yeah, that's super awesome and really interesting. Given that you guys are providing payday loans, how do you mitigate risk and how what enables you guys to be able to provide this? So we really don't see ourselves as a payday loan provider for, for a few reasons. 
The first and main reason is that we have the user's main digital banking relationship. People use Claire to pay their bills, to save money. It's the debit card they use to pay for their gas, to buy their groceries. And we see all these you know, flows of money go in and out of users' accounts. And so for us, really extending the relationship to giving them a, you know, access to their earned wages whenever they need them really isn't the same kind of level of risk that a payday loan provider who don't really know who they're underwriting and, and for how much would be facing. And so really this close relationship with users is what allows us to make sure that we always get our money back and make sure that we can, you know, provide this service for free. But another really big difference is we only advance money that we know has been earned, right? So if you're a payday loan provider, you can go give 150 bucks to an hourly worker and you're going to expect that money back on the Friday or you can extend them at sort of spiraling fees. We don't do that. We basically know thanks to our integrations with the clocks or the workforce management providers, as they're called, that those hours have been clocked out and that therefore they are expected to be paid to the to the early worker. That's really cool. So basically, there's limited risk because you're integrated with both the employee side and the workforce management side. So switching gears a bit, can you tell us more about Claire's revenue model? So the interchange fee is paid by merchants. They are paid to MasterCard and then always go back to the bank that issued the card. In this case, it's our partner MetaBank on which Claire is built and they sort of give the rev share back to us. Uh, if you were Chase, then Chase would be getting some kind of revenue. And all of us are paying this fee every time we swipe our cards. Because Claire is sort of the one getting the customers and building the whole platform, we essentially get a pretty substantial percentage of, of that fee back to us. Yeah, that's really amazing that you're able to provide that for customers for free. Do you guys plan to diversify into new revenue streams in the future? Yeah, so this is always a, uh, a dangerous topic because, you know, Amazon sold books for 10 years and we need to make sure that we stay absolutely focused on providing the, the right level of product. But I will say that um, a few things stand out from our users. The first thing is... Um, while a lot of them want access to part of their paycheck, some of them are, are talking about needing access for to liquidity that lasts a longer term than just two weeks, right? You know, you need to buy a certain product in like a fridge and you don't have access to buy now, pay later, for example, or maybe it's just a doctor's bill or a medical bill or something. And that obviously opens a whole door of lending. Claire is sort of very careful about entering this space because we 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 don't want to be sort of labeled as a um, a usurious lender by charging really high rates, and so we need to make sure that we can maintain our underwriting advantage uh, for those loans as well. But that's that's kind of one place we can go there. The other thing is we're just seeing a lot of demand from our users for uh, cross pollination of other financial products. Think bringing. Um, savings accounts with high yield interest interests to our users, bringing credit products to our users, and bringing remittance products to our users. So we're definitely seeing people ask us to add this to our product roadmaps. We're just being extremely careful about, you know, first nailing our first value prop before we move on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's also like how a lot of e-wallets have approached it, right? You kind of like get the base and then expand into more fintech offerings. This kind of segues really well into my next question, which is, what does it really mean to be a social impact fintech startup? And how do you balance profitability with social impact? Yeah, it's a, a really good question. I think the kind of main view I have here is you cannot slowly become a social impact company. You need to really start there from the outset. Because in order to be a social impact startup or any other company, 
the idea is to set really hard principles on yourself that you believe are game changers and that you believe are the right thing to do, and then finding creative ways around them to make it to make your business model viable, whether it's through product or distribution changes. So in our case, that's a commitment to never ever charge a fee for people who simply want to access cash that they've already earned, right? And it seems kind of crazy. Like if you look at daily pay, pay active, other, other companies like that, they just don't really have the opportunity to, to monetize other than by charging those fees. And for us, we had to, from the outset, find that monetization strategy to make sure that we weren't sort of a laughing stock when we were raising funds, right? But many view social impact and profitability as a direct trade-off. And I say I think that more and more we're seeing that having taken this stance has been super helpful to us on so many different levels. And I'm actually starting to see more and more entrepreneurs in our generation starting to take this stance, right? Like what do we believe is right? And then working back from from there to what do we think is actually feasible and building out a product roadmap. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it matters a lot to customers as well. People are increasingly really careful about what they choose to use. Totally. I think this actually brings to mind a story. So um, one of my advisors is the former COO of Venmo. Oh, wow. Mike Vaughn. He often kind of helps us think through the way we've built out our product roadmap. And one of the things that's always interesting when we hear about Venmo's history is you know, for, for the longest time, Venmo's monetization strategy was was pretty unclear, right? The idea was, okay, maybe we can monetize on deposits, but then the interest rates went down. And Venmo actually went through two acquisitions, uh, for, first uh, to Braintree and then to PayPal, without really having ironed out the answer to that question. But all they knew is that it was impossible for anyone to win the peer-to-peer space if they were to be charging a fee at every transaction. And they were absolutely right. Like if they, if you look at anybody who tried to go that direction into peer-to-peer, it failed. And I think that for us, it was a pretty similar approach, right? We just didn't see it as making sense for people to access cash that they've already earned, right? These are hours that they've already clocked out and they've gone home to bed and thought about. Charging people you know, a fee to access that seemed really wrong. And I think that we've taken a similar stance and we're, we're finding that taking that stance helps us distribute, but is also kind of helping everything come together, even in, in the monetization aspect. Yeah, exactly. So moving into the growth story for Claire, which I think has been really interesting to read about. So first off, how would you say Claire is differentiated from other payday lenders? Yeah, so maybe first kind of taking a step back on the overall fintech industry and where I think earned wage access fits in. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's really clear that addressing liquidity in the US is a problem that needs to be solved. I think particularly for the user base that we end up being exposed to through workforce management systems, it's like mostly people with sub 650 credit scores and their options are pretty bad, right? Their options are essentially an extremely low balance credit card, um, some buy now, pay later for specific objects that they're trying to buy, and the rest is basically all usurious lending. So I think what we're starting to see in fintech in general is this just big movement towards trying to address this low balance uh, advance liquidity issue across the board. Right, banks like Chime with Spot Me features. Moneyline is basically built entirely around this idea, um, and you know you just got a bunch of these other products like Dave, etc., that that have come to be. The overwhelming consensus is, if you can solve that problem, you're going to start having users come to you and stay with you. And I think that this is really why Claire sees earned wage access not as 
um, its own separate thing, but really something that needs to lie at the foundation of um, a digital banking platform, right? And the services that we can provide our users. And so this is why we built things like that from the outset. But what it also allows us to do is, is two things. First of all, we don't charge a fee, as I mentioned earlier. And this is super important on multiple levels. On the regulatory level, it makes us not a user's lender. Um, businesses and workforce management systems prefer to market us that way because there's none of this sort of like, is $5 for $30 advance or crazy percentage interest rate or not. But also our approach of working with workforce management systems means that we can cater to small businesses right? Versus a lot of the earned wage access providers that go to large employers, where it won't make sense for them to be sort of closing a 50 person employer hoping to get five or 10 people. For us, it becomes way easier to serve these tiny businesses because we work directly with the software that people use to clock in and clock out. And that gives us access to these sort of 60 or 80%, depending on how you count it, uh, of the US population that, that works for these smaller companies. Wow, so it seems like Clara's ability to give its services to employees for free really generates organic growth for you. And this differentiates Clara not just for the employees, but also for their employers. So you've already touched a bit on growth, but I do want to ask, as your payday wallet gains traction, which customer acquisition channels have worked the best for you? For Claire, one of the things that stood out is that we shouldn't have to absolutely rely on the employer's green light and whatever sort of red tape will come with that in order to be able to serve our end users. Because what we're doing is we're really underwriting people based on HR tech data. Um, and it's been sort of really important for us to make sure we don't have to go through that toll gate because it makes distribution that much easier. The other thing that we've realized is that going through these, these um, B2B2C partnerships just gives you a better exposure and better targeting of the people that you're marketing to, right? The people we, we, the people that have access to Claire are systematically people who do have a job, which is an hourly job that they're clocking out for. And there's a pretty big overlap with the people who actually don't have access to credit cards. Uh, because they're in hourly jobs. And that allows us to be sort of super targeted in our distribution and take kind of the same approach that um, Square actually ultimately took with, um, with uh, the Cash App with their, their, um, their terminals. So I think that Claire's success is going to be um, really dependent on these partnerships in the long term. Um, and it's really sort of where we're, we're looking at improving our funnel over the next few years. So just like looking, I guess, further down the funnel, how are you guys thinking about getting people to spend more on Claire? So today, the majority of our users' paychecks come to Claire, as opposed to your average neobank that collects them for only like 5% of the users they have in the first place. And that's because we took a really strong stance at the beginning to only providing a full service to users who do actually trust us and users who do decide to uh, partially or fully convert. So very early, very early on in the onboarding process, we tell them uh, switch, you know, 50 or 60 or hundred percent of your paycheck over to Claire and have access to this. So I think we kind of kicked off our product growth without having seen card spend as being an issue at all. Uh, but seeing rather the, the focus being more on making sure we convince more and more people to actually go down this funnel. So I think the, um, main focus that we're going to be taking now to make sure we 
I guess, close more and more people on this digital bank is both reducing friction and distribution by, you know, reusing more data and onboarding, for example, uh, which means that we could issue digital banks very quickly to people without them going through some kind of convoluted signup flow. Um, or, for example, increasing the available earned wages we give to people to try to get as close as possible to um, or above, you know, what a credit card could do. Um, and then finally, improving the digital banking experience to create more long-term stickiness. So basically, you know, we, we see some churn in the jobs that our users have, but making sure that, uh, as we're already seeing today, more and more users actually hold on to Claire as a bank account long-term, um, even if they've left the job that provided them access to the service in the first place. That is super cool. So essentially, Claire builds a loyal, high-quality customer base from the onset, rather than trying to convert them into high-quality users after acquiring them. So it seems like a really amazing, successful growth story so far. I'm curious to know what you feel has gone really well for Claire and what have the major challenges been as you've scaled? What is, a, what is you know, a, a constant focus for us is um, just reducing the burden of getting on to our platform in the first place. You know, the integrations were obviously a heavy piece and we're leading the way in uh, integrating with HR tech platforms. Like nobody's really done this in the past for workforce management platforms. And so bringing that next uh, level of API integrations and setting the kind of standard of, of data exchange and, and underwriting with that data in that space has been a, a pretty constant focus of ours. How do you build an algorithm based on earned wages, but how do you also build one based on somebody's tenure at the job or you know what level they have at that job and any other factors you may want to include there? That's really sort of what's been our, our primary focus. And then the second piece is making sure that these integrations do actually yield really positive sort of partnerships for user acquisition, because it's possible to just throw a logo on your website and that you know doesn't actually really do much for your growth. And for us, really making sure that we have a model where employers don't have to approve everything, single thing that happens, that employees can just like sign up very easily without having to fill out too many forms, and that we can potentially carry data across from one platform to another to reduce the, the burden. That's just really been sort of our focus this year and what we're going into next year. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So kind of reducing the friction on both sides, right? Yeah, for sure. That is super interesting and bridges to my next question really well, which is how does Claire think about iterating on its products? And like, are there specific feedback loops that you guys rely on to make sure that things are going well? Yeah, for sure. A uh, ton of feedback loops. I think so. Our most important feedback loops uh, come from our data analytics department, our customer support departments, and more and more now from the user research being led by our design team. And I think the most dif the most difficult part is resisting the temptation of iterating on tiny parts of the product all the time. You need to really learn to use the insights and data to constantly rethink what product structure you want and what is a product experience you're trying to deliver and try to set goals in more of a quarterly or biannual increment to ensure you're always going down the right path. So one example could be uh, the widget. Essentially, we launched a widget that you can embed into workforce management apps, allowing for uh, the onboarding to be way quicker. Um, 
that was sort of an initial stance that we took. And I think what we're increasingly starting to learn is you don't want necessarily everything to be embedded. And that there's certain times in a user's journey where actually downloading an app gives them a lot of trust when it comes to financial services. And so instead of constantly little, you know, iterating on little messages, we really, we really need to challenge ourselves to take a step back look at those feedback loops and say, you know, is our product strategy as a whole actually making sense or do we need to be sort of going back back to the drawing board and, you know, changing the, the way our PMs are working? Well, thank you so much for sharing your growth story with us, Alex. It was so interesting to hear. Um, so just switching gears a bit to more of current events and how you guys have been affected by them. So I saw that you recently closed a Series A, so congratulations. Um, with this funding, I guess, what are you guys planning to do? And what's the next frontier for Claire? Yeah, so after Series A, Series A comes Series B. Um, we, uh, we are obviously gearing up for one uh, sometime next year. We raised our Series A with Thrive in, in Feb. Uh, and I think for us, the, the big mission of the Series A was, you know, we had a, a proven concept and a distribution which end-to-end -end was, was pretty well-defined. We needed to go through the motions of making sure that the distribution actually works and patch where it didn't. And I think uh, that really required going from sort of pilots to full-on launches, understanding how to scale marketing teams and marketing strategies to... Um, you know, instead of tens or hundreds of businesses to, to thousands of businesses. And I think that we're really on our way to checking all of those boxes. The second obvious piece is when you go from Series A to Series B, it's this total change of mindset from really having to do a lot with as little of money as possible and being extremely scrappy to now kind of sort of setting the foundations to a, a company that is ready to grow, bringing in the right director level talent and really bringing in people that um, teach you how your company should be run rather than, than trying to make it up as you go along. Um, so yeah, that's been a lot of our focus and um, you know, a few of the things we want to close out as we go into uh, 2022. So I guess one thing that I've noticed just doing some reading on payroll companies is that a lot of them are pivoting into like financial wellness. So uh -huh. I guess I think you mentioned this before, like people have a bit of demand for like wealth products. Is that kind of in the cards for Claire? Yeah, I mean, we took the stance of being on the financial wellness side of things early on, but it's it's really hard to do. Um, I think the main reason why we had to be so careful about it is when you make a wage advance, um, you're, you're giving people access to money that they didn't typically have access to before. And so you need to make sure you're not creating some kind of either addictive behavior or, you know, just kind of abusive behavior. Um, so for us, it was super important to kind of make sure people understand, okay, this is money I'm taking from myself in the future. This is money that's coming out of uh, a paycheck that I won't see again. And this is kind of how my expected earnings stack up versus my expected expenses. expenses. Some companies have done an amazing job at it. Um, and I think we're, we're still working on sort of the right UI UX there. But um, it, is a, it is a full on focus of our digital banking team. Got it. No, that's so interesting. I feel like you guys think a lot about like the ethics of stuff that you do at every step. On this topic, a huge part of your customer base, I understand, are gig workers who probably faced a lot of changes throughout COVID-19. How did the pandemic affect your product strategy and overall demand for your products? The pandemic kicked off about five months after we quit our jobs and started the business. 
we had actually already launched a uh, an MVP in market, but it was anyone's guess at the time. Like we we had no idea. Um, VCs were a little worried, etc. Essentially, employers who were who are our main user acquisition channel were shedding employees. But on the other side, people who often became the sole breadwinner in their family increasingly needed the financial flexibility that Claire could offer. Um, and ultimately, the answer is that essentially, while it's unfortunate that um, so many people face those hardships, they were able to turn to Claire. Um, and that actually ended up helping us grow. Um, it did really strengthen our mission to start f- thinking about, you know, how can we be offering this service in the right um, in the right measure? But it did sort of have a, a tailwind on us for growth. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, HCMs, payroll providers, everybody just started turning towards Claire to um, to help sort of bridge these gaps, right? Employers were seeing the need for earned wages. Um, just because employees were asking for it more and more, and the number of providers out there is. I think you can count them on maybe one or two hands. I mean, it's, it's pretty limited and you know, they could, they could only take on so much work. A lot of them, I mean, almost all of them were charging fees. And so that really helped us close a lot of partnerships. So I'd say overall, you know, we really saw a lot of pickup during, during those first few months. No. And it's great that you guys were able to kind of help this segment of the population when they needed it the most. Okay, my final uplifting question is, if you could give advice to yourself as a young professional, what would it be? The first thing is, don't be afraid to find an area of interest early on and just dive in. Um, Career switching is more and more common, so you're not really limiting yourself by doing that. But it's really about studying the details of an industry for a while that you find real opportunities and start building a network that acts as a flywheel but also just start realizing stuff that maybe people who have been in that industry for a long time might not even be noticing. So don't be scared to dive into stuff. Don't try to stay a generalist too long. Just go for it. You, you know, don't worry about it. Things will be okay. The second piece of advice, super simple, but just listen and be polite to everyone everywhere all the time. Um, every time you start a new job, you'll learn a lot and people will give you opportunities if you do that. Not that I wasn't listening or wasn't polite when I was uh, younger, but I do think that it could have helped to hear it one more time. So if you're still with us, thanks for listening. We're hoping to put out more episodes like this every week, so stay tuned. As promised, here's our pitch for the MIT FinTech Conference, a student-run event held on February the 25th at the Marriott Hotel in Cambridge. We have some truly exciting speakers lined up for this year, and last year's attendees included Vlad Tenev from Robinhood, Ajay Banga from MasterCard, Sheila Warren, head of blockchain from the World Economic Forum, in addition to our own prominent fintech personalities at MIT, such as Neha Narula from the Decentralized Currency Initiative at MIT Media Lab. This year, we will hold a conference in person and talk remotely, and it will include a Shark Tank-style startup pitch competition, a raffle for a collection of NFTs crafted and minted by MIT students, and many more initiatives. You can already head to MITFintech.com to get your early bird tickets with discounts for students. If you're interested in partnering with our conference, please get in touch through MITFintech at MIT.edu.